This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show Doctor Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. So today we're starting with on this day, and uh, born on this day was William Morgan, who was an astronomer. He was born in 1951, and he was the first person to discover evidence that the Milky Way has spiral arms. Now, I very much enjoyed having David and Andy on the show the other day, and I want to ask them a question about this, because I think the reason the spirals emerge in a galaxy is it because you have two galaxies sitting out there in space, and they collide a lot more than you'd think. And so a lot of the mixy, the, the funny, chaotic patterns you get up there are caused by the collision of galaxies. And so you imagine one's a big cloud and the other one comes flying through the middle of it and punches a hole right in the middle and it leaves a stream of ma- of suns mm. behind it and so you get this bar, like a barrel and then the galaxy itself is rotating so you can imagine a bar and you twist the middle of it and you end up with a spiral Sounds like a good idea to me I wouldn't really know though I thought it had something to do with gravity and how gravity gets weaker and so they have spiral arms but I really am not an astrophysicist. Oh it's definitely it's definitely gravity because yeah. as the suns approach each other oh, yeah. that they, they gravitationally attract mm. uh, and you end up with this big splat. Mm. Yeah they are beautiful though the pictures of those galaxies and the spiral arms they are really amazing. Well we'll have to ask David and Andy when they come back on the show. That's right. <laughs> now I know I always give a plug to the astronomy picture of the day and you have the most amazing pictures that come up in that. And I think one of the other things that happens when they collide is it triggers star formation because it stirs up the uh the matter in the in the galaxy. And then the thing, the matter collapses, and you get suns forming. Oh, how exciting! Yeah, and us. <laughs> yeah, eventually. and and the Earth at some stage. Yeah. This is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Oh, and so now this day in science, the in 1957, the first electric watch. So Hamilton Electric. It took 10 years to develop the first electric watch, and it was an instant hit, and you didn't have to wind it. That was the whole idea of it. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I've never owned a watch that didn't wind, that, that had to, you that had, you to, had wind, to wind, so I've only ever known electric watches. And they made funky sort of modernist styling on them as well, and they kept producing these things up until 1969. Oh. Now, I have a heritage item from my dad, which is a Seiko watch, which has a little mechanism that winds itself. As you move your arm, oh, it, it winds yeah. up the watch. Yeah, I think they still do those, uh, like Swatch and stuff still make those kind of watches. Yeah. I've got a Seiko on right now. <laughs> <laughs> they must be good at making watches. <laughs> we should get sponsorship from yeah, them. Yeah, we should. <laughs> uh, also born on this day in 1823 was Robert Whitehead, and he invented the first torpedo. And so he made the torpedo using compressed a compressed air engine and 36 kil- kilograms of dynamite. It sounds a bit scary to me. <laughs> yeah, and it was what date was it? Nineteen. Uh, well, he was born in eighteen twenty-three. Eighteen twenty-three. So I guess torpedoes were invented in the eighteenth century. Yeah. yeah. Now there's all sorts of weird things that they do with torpedoes. Mm-hmm. They try to steer them with bits of wire, <laughs> so they they stream wire behind them. Uh, because imagine you you launch this torpedo and it just goes out the front of the submarine yeah. or the or the ship. Mm. Actually, it probably wasn't launched from a submarine. It was probably launched from a ship. Mm. Uh, anyway, so you've got to steer this thing, and it's probably quite hard because the other ship is moving. And so they, they did things like streaming wire. But later in, I think it was for World War Two, around about that period, they used sound sensing to, mm. to steer the torpedo, and the mm. thing went hunting for the noise of the yeah. other of the other ship. And unfortunately. Uh, the thing went out, couldn't find any noise out there, so it did a U-turn, went back and blew up the <laughs> the submarine itself. That's pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad the torpedoes work a bit better these days, but I, I, can't, I have to say I've never really thought about how torpedoes worked. They always seem a bit weird to me. Yeah. It's pretty amazing technology, though, and considering it was invented so long ago, that's very impressive. And I'm reminded also that, of that story of we did on Fuzzy, not too long ago, um, animals used in, as weapons. 
and there was a story about a dog and they strapped explosives to its back and it had a lever that stuck up mm. and the idea was it would run underneath the, the bottom of an enemy tank mm. and the lever would flip down and blow the enemy tank up oh. yeah <laughs> suicide animals I don't yeah. think they volunteer for that though <laughs> No, no, like but the terrorists. but the dog the dog kind of got lonely on a few occasions and yeah. went back. You know, uh, was it Henry Lawson? Is it the loaded dog story? Uh, yeah, I think I, so. I think it's Henry Lawson. And anyway, the dog came back. You know, probably tongue slathering, saying, "You know, here I am." And uh, yeah, again, so they they gave this up as a bad idea. <laughs> yes, not a good idea. Not very predictable. Uh, Whereas I've I was hearing about homing pigeons, and they have like a ninety-seven percent success rate in delivering their message. Is that so right? So pigeons were used throughout so many wars, like World War Two, World War One, and they had ninety-seven percent success rate that they will deliver the message that they were given. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Amazing animals. And it's all the amazing sense of direction that they have due to some special magnetic abilities or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure how well we understand that. Yeah, I'm not familiar with how it works exactly, but they're very good at delivering messages. So maybe they should have been strapping the dynamite to the pigeons and not the the dogs. Well... (laughs) Funny you should say that because one of the other things that we uh, covered on that show was uh, bats, the, oh, and they strapped the explosives. location. Yeah, they strapped explosives to bats, and they gave that away as a bad idea as well. <laughs> but also um, dolphins mm-hmm. that injected enemy divers with carbon dioxide. No way. Yeah. My gosh. Yeah, it was a horrible. The whole we went through a whole list of terrible things that that we done to animals mm. in, the, in the name of warfare. That is, there are, there are some terrible things. Yeah. And all those poor animals that got shot into space as well, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> and, and Laika, the, the first dog. Okay, so also on this day in 1919, uh, Ernest Rutherford split the atom mm. and he bombarded nitrogen with alpha particles and he transmuted the, uh, you know, the great goal of the old alchemist was to transmute into gold. Yeah. Well, he transmuted nitrogen into oxygen. Wow. And so to remind myself of the different sorts of radiation, I uh, checked this last night. Alpha radiation is helium-4 nucleus. Uh-huh. So it's a big chunk of matter and it, it must fuse with the, uh, the, the nucleus of the nitrogen, giving mm. you a heavy nucleus, which makes it into oxygen. Mm. And uh, he also uh, he classified this alpha Radiation beta, which is electrons, yeah. and gamma radiation. And he classified these according to their ability to pe- penetrate matter. So alpha particles are stopped by a sheet of paper. Pretty, They're not very... Mm. They don't have strong penetrating power. Beta um, can be stopped by a sheet of aluminium, and gamma, you need lead. Wow. Impressive. Very interesting. I've... Rutherford is from New Zealand. Yes. Yeah, I've been to his university. Well, he went to the University of Christchurch. Yeah. And he did a lot of work there. And you can go to the University of Christchurch. And it's really interesting. They have a whole display about Rutherford and his history and how he became such a great scientist. And he also did some work at McGill University in Montreal. And I happen to have gone there as well. (laughs) Been following Rutherford around for some reason. Wow, I wonder what sort of person he was. Do you get a yeah. sense of that from yeah, having visited those places? Yeah, he sounds like a really amazing person and really, yeah, just frightfully intelligent and travelled the world to do the science that he enjoyed doing. Yeah. So it was it was a really good exhibit. It has, like, his old classroom and stuff. Yeah, and apparently you can go to Faraday's lab as well oh, in really? uh, in London. Really? Yeah, and it's all preserved pretty much as he had it yeah. in in the day. Yeah, yeah, it's like this in into Christchurch. Yeah, now, and he did those fabulous public lectures, so I would mm. really like to get him onto Fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, he did the Royal Society lectures, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, which was probably the first institution in the world that did science communication back in the 1600s, ah. the Royal Society in London. So there we go. We have mm. a great heritage. We do. Lots too. Now, a couple of other quirky ones also this mm-hmm. day in science. Uh, 1988. No, I shouldn't got that wrong. It might be 1888. The first drinking straw made of wax. And he made the prototype by getting a pencil, winding paper around it, and then coating it with wax. Oh, Good idea. <laughs> That's right. And he actually had a cigarette uh, paper factory. Um, but after 
having sorted out how to uh, automate this process, he ended up making more drinking straws than he did the cigarette papers. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And finally, this day in science, in 1871, oleomargarine was patented by Henry Bradley. Wow. That, that was a good invention. I, I like margarine. <laughs> uh, okay, now... Did you get, uh, Joe, any of those silly hats at Christmas time with the jokes inside? Yeah, of course. Christmas crackers. Very good tradition that we have at Christmas time. <laughs> well, there's the science one for you. Two hydrogens meet. One says, I've lost my electron. And the other one says, are you sure? And the first one says, yes, I'm positive. Oh, dear. Wow, that actually came out of the Christmas cracker. Yep, a science one. I'm glad one. that they're, you know, putting some science jokes in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, now, before we go on to, uh, we have a little story about the water world, but before we do that, I've been looking at the world population statistics and on the US Census website, some rather depressing numbers there. And the population yesterday was 6 billion. Seven hundred ninety-three million, eight hundred ninety-eight thousand and twenty, give or take. Wow. <laughs> so six point seven billion, and you can look at this site. It tells you per month the projected and actual increase. Well, as far as I can guess, what it mm-hmm. is. And if my sums are correct, that means that during the one-hour course of this show, the world's population will have increased by a net. I'm not going to tell you now. That's a quiz question. You come back later in the show at the end and we'll tell you how much in one hour will the world's net population increase. Looking forward to that, although it is terrifying. <laughs> y- yes, yes. Well, that's it is quite bleak, actually. Mm. So here's an item about uh, water-rich alien worlds. So this one I had for Addie and David the other day. And I found about this planet... Uh, it's an Earth-like planet orbiting a nearby star, which is supposedly rich in water, and they can guess that because of the density of the planet. And it's about 42 light years away, and has a radius about 2.7 times that of Earth, and the planet has the rather unexciting name GJ1214b. They could have been more creative, don't you think? (laughs) That's right. But unfortunately, this place is a bit uh, hot for us. I mean, it's uh, somewhere between 280 and 120 degrees Celsius. So you could have a lot of nice cups of tea, mm. but uh, not good for living on. Mm. So um, some of the water would be likely to be in crystalline form that exists at pressures greater than 20,000 times Earth's sea level atmosphere. Mm. And the new planet temperature is much lower uh, than that of the only similar discovery called, and here's another exciting name, C-R-O-R-O-T-7-B, <laughs> which orbits a much hotter star. Oh. And uh, that one has a planet of uh, a density close to Earth, about 5.5 grams per pu- cubic centimetre. And thank you, Marcus. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on Community Radio 2XX and also streaming via the net through... What's our website? It's www.2xfm.org.au. Good call, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. Some fast reading there. <laughs> okay, now that would make me laugh, which is a cue to? A story called Laughing for 16 Million Years. And the story is out of Cosmos magazine, which is a great Australian science magazine. Uh, so... It says, tickle a baby chimp and it will giggle like a human infant. This is because laughter evolved in a common ancestor, says scientists. Published in Current Biology, a new study shows laughter is not a unique human trait, but is shared by all apes. So Marina Davila-Ross, who is the lead author and an evolutionary psychologist with the University of Portsmouth in England, says, Throughout evolution, gradual changes occurred, making the acoustic laugh characteristic of humans quite distinct from those of the great apes. If you tickle an orangutan, for example, it makes loud panting hoots, which could be, which could be easy to mistake for expressions of pain or distress rather than joy. Uh, the scientist de Villa Ross's team have shown that the grunting sounds are the, are the ape equivalent of laughter and also that the more closely related a primate is to us, the more human-like its laughter appears. 
So for the study, they recorded the sounds made when they tickled three human babies and 22 ape babies, including orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos. They then compared and contrasted the sounds, analyzing features such as duration and frequency. Uh, the characteristics of the different laughs were used to create an evolutionary tree showing the relationships between species. This was then superimposed on top of a tree creating using, created using genetic similarities, which included estimated dates for when the different species split based on the rate of mutation of genes. Using this ingenious method, the researchers estimate that laughter has its roots at least 10 to 16 million years in the past. And, of course, it's a very important social signal, and all those endorphins are released when you laugh and gives that nice sensation. Yeah, I can understand completely why laughter clubs exist, because when you laugh, I mean, there's nothing, no better exercise for your insides, I think you'd say. And uh, the funny thing is that people laugh most often when the situation is bleakest. Do you, do you think so? <laughs> I think that people laugh when they're uncomfortable. They don't know what else to do. Oh, there's the nervous, there's the the nervous, nervous giggle. Laugh. Yeah. Uh, and then laughter when things are bleakest. Well, maybe not laughter, but I guess I'm talking about humour there, aren't I? I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about you know the things are so bad that we just have to make a joke out of it and and lift our morale a little bit. Yeah. I think it's a very good thing to do in those situations. You've got to laugh, otherwise life gets way too hard. <laughs> but are the chimps telling each other jokes? Yeah. Well, I, well, they, they did this study by tickling the babies. I, I, maybe tickling is a universal thing. The, I don't know if they're making jokes. So. Well, rats do this thing called brusking, which is a kind of a, uh, almost like a laughter. But I don't think it's, I don't think you'd call it laughter. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, from laughing to coughing, mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, we also had on the show a few weeks ago uh, Kim and Dee Marie from National Capital Audiology, oh, yes. who uh, gave me the bleak news about my hearing, and g'day to you both. Thanks for coming on. And uh, for, I looked up this thing about a mobile phone being able to use to diagnose disease. Wow. And it does it by uh, analysing the profile of a cough. So when you cough, there's a very distinct structure to it. So you, first of all, you have to inhale a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's the initial silent explosion of about 50 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And then there's a final 100 to 150 millisecond, uh, millisecond uh, sound. And uh, using complex analysis of 1,000 samples, I guess that's time-divided samples, mm -hmm. and then they can break it down into dry coughs, wet coughs, um, I'm not sure about embarrassed coughs. <laughs> <laughs> or trying to get someone's attention cough. <laughs> but it's probably, it's probably part of a trend, you know, to allow mobile diagnosis. So yeah. for places where medical help's not easily available. Mm, absolutely, particularly like in Australian remote communities. Yes. If, yeah. if a patient could just phone up a doctor... Uh, rather than the doctor having to come and see them, then that would be really useful. Well, then, then they could say they could classify. You can say, "Oh, that's that." I'm not sure if it's good enough to do that, but maybe you could say that sounds like a mild, you know, yeah. irritation, or that could be an asthmatic cough. Mm -hmm. My daughter mm -hmm. Katie has a has a, a cough, but it's it's just asthma. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so on. Or you need to get yeah. to a hospital fast. Yeah, I think that would be really useful if you're travelling in a country where you don't really speak the language rather than trying to hunt down a doctor. If you can just phone up something and that tells you whether you need to go see a doctor or not, that would make it a lot easier. So then we need now we need a, a mobile phone that will analyse bodily fluids. <laughs> well, we take our own little testing kits with us when we go uh, anywhere. Actually... I'm being a little bit facetious, but there is actually somebody I heard interviewed the other day, mm. and they're making a little micro device that they can take into the field, mm. and it's about the size of a mobile phone, yeah. and it's one of these circuits on a chip, and I'm not sure how they do it, mm. but uh, it will actually profile whatever the, the fluid that's put onto it. Wow. And then, so you, you can use a, you know, a much lower level of training for the person doing the diagnosis. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think all these technologies are very useful. Well, speaking of, uh, of technologies, actually, we'll come to that one later. There's one else, a story about how flies were used to improve um, mobile phones. Uh, sorry, hearing aids. Yeah. Ah, that's it there. 
Okay. So this tiny fly, and it's called the uh, Ormia, and most flies have no sense of hearing whatsoever, but this parasitic fly called Ormia ochracea, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, it has, right. it, well, we'll go with that. It has an excellent sense of directional hearing, rivaled only by humans. Now, our ears are about, what, uh, eight centimetres apart, mm-hmm. so you can do the differential timing of the sound coming into either mm-hmm. ear. But these ears of this tiny little uh, parasitic fly are only a half a millimetre apart. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's really good at localising sound, in other words, telling where the sound comes from. So this fly um, needs to find the cricket that it parasitises, mm-hmm. and it picks up the song of the cricket, and then the flies deposit their larvae on the cricket tissue where they mature. <laughs> yeah. So to test how good it really is, these scientists created an elaborate experiment. They tethered a tiny fly to a ping-pong ball, which functioned as a spherical treadmill. (laughs) (laughs) And the ball was dotted so that the computer could track the movement of the ball and thus the fly. Hmm. And the the researchers then played artificial cricket sounds from various locations and observed the fly's movements, and they found that Ormia could detect directional changes as small as two degrees. Wow. It's better than humans. Yeah, that's right. So even humans uh, trying to detect who you speak in a crowded room can't Mm. do better than that. No. So a key aspect of the fly's localisation is that its eardrums beat out of phase with each other. That sounds very strange. Yeah. Uh, The the near ear, the one close to the sound source, responds more vigorously compared to the far ear. Mm. And they're doing all this. I mean, it takes a human about 10 microseconds, and a fly does all this maths in in its head in only 50 nanoseconds. Mm. So that uh, Ormia has managed to develop that sophisticated sense of hearing despite its minuscule size mm. leads researchers to hope that they'll eventually be able to copy the fly's hearing apparatus to make better hearing aids. Sounds which would be good, good. to me. Yeah. I mean, because hearing is such a difficult sense to replicate. My dad wears hearing aid, and it doesn't matter how good his hearing aid. He just got a new one, but he still has trouble hearing. And the worst thing is when he's speaking... He speaks very low and kind of mumbles, so it's hard for everyone else to hear what he's saying as well. So it's affected his speech? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, it's affected, it's affected his volume of speech. Yes. And so it makes it very difficult for others to hear what he's saying sometimes. It's better when he's wearing his hearing aid, but it's still not, you know, ideal. So any improvements on hearing aids would be excellent. Well, it, it has affected me. I've lost... The reason I had Dee-Marie and Kim on the show yeah. was because I met them while having my hearing test, mm. and I've lost a major chunk of the low frequency, particularly in my right ear, mm. and it, it has affected how I perceive my own voice. Oh, really? So normal conversation, it's not too bad, but I was talking to a room of about 30 people the other day, yeah, and my voice sounded completely wrong. In what you don't know, it, in what way? Well, it it, it it sounds like my voice is coming out of a little transistor speaker about f- five meters away, oh. and I found it really off-putting because you know when you're speaking, mm. I mean as I speak now it's fine, mm. but when you're speaking, projecting your voice, yeah, um, you you've got that feedback going, mm. and I was really distracted, and I think I sound like a complete nit. <laughs> So did you do you think you compensated by speaking louder or softer when you're speaking to the crowd? I think I'm not speaking as clearly. Oh. I suspect that I'm mumbling more like your dad. Yeah, it's possible, yeah. It's my dad. Um, well, I had my boyfriend visiting who's Israeli, so his language first language isn't English, although he's fluent in English. And he said, well, I can't really understand your dad very well because he mumbles a bit and... Um, and because of his hearing problems. Uh, but one of my mum's friends was there and she said, don't worry, no one can understand Tony. <laughs> he does mumble, it's not just you and it's not just because English isn't your first language. So it definitely affects his speech and I think that's the hardest thing is that not only is Dad asking us to repeat things a few times, we have to ask him to repeat things a few times as well. It slows down conversations a little bit. Right. But it's not always the case. It's, it's much worse in crowded, noisy situations. So the difficult part for life is trying to find quiet restaurants to go to. <laughs> yes. But that's not so bad, really. 
Well, you listening now through your transistor radios, your ear pressed fervently against the speaker. <laughs> uh, someone said to me yesterday, Nick said, uh, how does that work? All that's happening is the speaker is moving in and out, and yet you hear all the subtleties of sound. You hear the individual voices, the individual notes and pulses of a piece of music. Mm. What's going on there? How does the speaker manage to reproduce all that? Yeah. Well, of course, what we're actually bypassing here is it's not just about a series of mechanical and electrical things going on in your ear. Mm. Your brain is doing this amazing amount of processing and it picks apart a sound and interprets it as you hear it. Yeah. And in your eye, something similar goes on. You tend to think that uh, inside your head is a humunculus, (laughs) technical term, but a little man inside your brain who's watching the whole show on a video projector inside your brain. Mm. But, of course, that doesn't solve the problem because that being himself has to interpret what's going on. All mm. you've done is push the problem one step further. <laughs> so what actually happens is the, it, the, the visual or the auditory signal is abstracted almost as soon as it gets into your brain. And so your eye, even the back of the optic nerve, does things like edge detection. Mm. So one of the most fundamental skills you have when you're looking is what's the edge of something? Like where's the edge mm. of that table? Where's mm. the edge of that tree? And um, It's pretty incredible how your brain can interpret sounds and sight and make it into something that makes sense in your head. And you're right, when you're trying to replicate it, it just is so many complications. It's so difficult. Fantastically subtle. Yeah. I believe that about half of the human brain is devoted to visual processing. Half? I think. That's about right. Oh, yeah. It's a massive amount. It is incredible what your brain does. So now from things... So that means that the world is abstracted inside your head Mm. and you might have that head co-populated by imaginary friends. (laughs) How's that for a segue? I like it. I like it because I have a story about imaginary friends right here and it says imaginary friends can help you. So... Imaginary friends, often considered unhealthy, may encourage children to consider somebody else's point of view, making them better able to interact with real people. So this isn't about imaginary friends in our head helping us to hear. This is actually about how imaginary friends can help us socialise and be more social human beings. Uh, So if I read you correctly, Mm. this uh, imaginary friend is like an abstraction of another person a conceptual person occupying, sharing your head, and you can interact and pre-play, like I might say, an inappropriate comment, and I can imagine how that friend would react to that. exactly. Is that sort of where we're headed with this? Yeah, that's exactly what these scientists... So Evan Kidd, a psycholinguist with the La Trobe University in Melbourne, said that the depiction of imaginary friends in popular culture has typically typically been negative, such as in the films Donnie Darko or Drop Dead Fred... Mm where the characters rely on imaginary characters due to some internal malice. Uh, But there are real benefits in having imaginary friends. Um, So surveys estimate that 65% of children have imaginary friends in the first eight years of life, and these kids master certain developmental hurdles faster. For instance, they use more complex sentence structures for their age than their peers. but researchers have been unsure why imaginary friends have a positive impact on development. Uh, so what they did, the scientists, uh, was they tested 44 kids aged between 3 and 6, half of whom had imaginary friends. The tests were designed to gauge how much children understood about what other people knew and those with imaginary friends did best. Uh, such children have a lot of practice at inventing interactions between their imaginary friends and themselves, and we think being in, char- in charge of both sides of the conversation facil- facilitates their development of conversational skills. Ah, now, can okay, an interesting thing about radio, and one thing I personally love radio mm. about radio is that it's a conversation with a person who's listening to the radio. So one of the skills that we have to develop if you're doing radio training is you imagine the person who's listening mm. and, we, and you refer to the listener. So it's a one-to-one. It's not an auditorium with, with the sound broadcasting across a sea of faces. Yeah. Every person feels like they have an individual conversation with you. That's you listening right now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with the person in the studio. And in a sense, as I speak, I'm also imagining you with your radio pressed against your ear listening to our conversation. But yeah. um, the other thing, there's this 
special cells in your brain called motor neurons that reside in the prefrontal cortex. Uh-huh. I hope I got all that right. Yeah. And they're ones that actually fire when you're watching somebody else do an activity. So I'm, I can remember doing this. I was watching a sports event and mm. there's a high jump. Right, yeah. and I'm really getting into this high jump and watching, you know, the, the competitors going, and I'm imagining myself jumping as the competitor jumps. Mm. So my, what that means is that those motor neurons in my prefrontal cortex were firing, even though I'm not actually lifting my leg. And I <laughs> was so involved with this, I actually found myself lifting my leg, <laughs> trying to do the Fosby flop yeah, yeah. over the bar. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. It's like when you're watching, maybe perhaps our listeners are experiencing this right now, yeah. where they're hearing us talk and they want to join in the conversation. And so they're probably having conversations in their head and thinking about what they would do if they were in the room with us and what they would say when you make a comment and how I don't jump in and say something back and things like that. So they're trying to have the conversation with us. Oh. Perhaps that's what, what you mean by having um, a conversation with our listeners. Yeah, and maybe you're infuriated out there because you're saying, Rod, that's not the prefrontal cortex. That's the- <laughs> These guys don't know what they're talking about. It's probably why you listen, so you can get mad at us. <laughs> but, but it's all part of this uh, theory of self, you see. You, you, you could project yourself or, or your own... Um, Mind mm. in, into another, and mm. as a social skill, that's a really invaluable thing to be able to do. Yeah, empathy and empathy, putting your putting yourself in other person's shoes. Well, it's a pretty handy evolutionary trait, isn't it? Because if you don't fit in with a crowd, mm. and a human society works because it's a collaboration of people. And if you don't collaborate successfully with the people around you, there's mm. a chance that you're going to be left on the outer and that you won't eat or you'll be eaten by something that wants to eat you. Mm. So you need to have the social skills to join in to be fed and protected and sheltered. That's right. Yeah. So one theory of, the th- of where this sense of self comes from is that it actually first evolved as an ability to project an in- another intelligence outside yourself and then it became adapted and you could better model your own state. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio in Canberra. And now we have a story about how humans would walk in circles if we didn't know where we were going. (laughs) And I had no idea about this one. It was very crazy. So scientists have confirmed the popular belief that without anything to guide them, humans really do walk in circles. It suggests we shouldn't trust our senses when lost. So psychologist and author Dr. Jan Suman of the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics says it's well known that people can walk in a straight line if they're in a known environment. They were trying to stimulate what happens when you get lost and try to find your way out. So they conducted experiments in a forest in Germany and parts of the Sahara Desert in Tunisia. Volunteers were dropped off either in the desert or forest and shown which direction to walk towards. They walked for about four hours and when walking in the forest, when the sun was visible, they walked basically perfectly straight. But when the sun disappeared, the volunteers walked in circles. Have you ever been really lost? Like seriously lost? Well, I've probably blanked it from my memory, but I'm sure I have been in the bush a few times. <laughs> I, I, I have been lost in that. Says, you know, it says there when you could see the sun, you know where you're going. Yeah. But uh, I got hopelessly and completely lost at a place on a familiar property, but there was a low cloud and we mm. couldn't see the sun. Yeah. And it's a really disconcerting feeling to be utterly lost other than when you're on the radio and don't know what to say next (laughs) yeah you get really desperate well I've been lost when I go traveling to cities and you get a map but you don't know where on the map you are and you don't know which way is north because there's no sun if it's a really you know like New York City with really high buildings it's actually a good idea to take a compass yeah that's what we ended up doing was always taking a compass with us and that way we'd at least be able to use our maps so this kind of fits in with what we were talking earlier about your mental model of the universe, mm. of the world. Your mm. universe is probably a little big, <laughs> even for mine. <laughs> um, so is this more to do with uh, just the fact that one leg is stronger, or is there is, is this... Well, yeah, they actually thought it might be because like previous theories have been that one leg is longer than the other, and therefore that makes us 
walk in circles, but um, the scientists proved that it wasn't because of that, because we walk in circles in both directions when we're lost. We don't just walk in one direction, which would be suggested by having one leg shorter than the other. We walk um, in both directions when we're lost. We kind of zigzag, and, ah. then, and, then we, and then we do circles and all sorts of things. And... Uh, Oh, we thought that might be because one side of your body is stronger than the other, but that, again, is disproved by the fact that we don't walk in one particular direction of oh, circle. We work in both directions uh, when so we're lost, yeah. So it's really to do with the visual cues, and if we can't see the sun or if we don't know where we're going, like we don't have a footpath to follow or we're really lost in the forest or the desert, then we walk in zigzags and around in circles. <laughs> Just very strange, isn't it? And so the lesson of that story is don't trust your senses because even though you might think you're walking in a straight line, you're not when there's no nothing to guide you. Ah. Mm. So, all right, so let's talk also. I can't think of a segue for this one. Oh, sorry, was there more to go on that one? No, that's all. Uh, parasitic flies force bees into drudgery. So... <laughs> <laughs> Now, yeah. Now, this one I, I got uh, because I had uh, Phil Spradbury, the wasp expert, European wasp expert, mm-hmm. on the on the show, and yeah. Harvey, and uh, they were a lot of fun. So one was a bee. Uh, uh, he done research on flies and mm-hmm. fly control using you know they drop the sterile uh, males, oh, yeah, I think, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, control the population that way. Mm. But uh, in certain bee societies, tiny parasitic fly has a big influence on which bee becomes the queen. Hmm. So not only that, it, the fly dictates the status of many of her subjects and the sweat bee that lives in the tropical forests of Panama and Costa Rica. Uh, and actually, Cat, uh, Katarina, Cat, uh, has actually been to Panama and studied insects. I think I've got the right cat. Uh, this one is called Megalopter. Genalis, and it lives in colonies where young female bees develop inside cells stuffed with nutritious nectar and pollen. And a small parasitic fly called, some long complicated name, mm-hmm. Fibrigella, uh, can also lay its egg inside these walls. And when they hatch, the larva steals the food stores, which stunts the bees' developing growth. Mm. So that's got a profound effect on the bees' future. Large, well-fed bees stand a good chance of leaving the nest and starting a new colony and reproducing queens. Mm. And their stunted relatives, in contrast, have little chance of succeeding as the colony founders. The best way to pass the genes on to the next generation uh, is to become sterile workers labouring for the queen that bore them. Mm. So in other words, to make the colony itself more successful, sacrifice themselves for the colony. (laughs) Uh, and thereby get their genes passed down to their workers' sisters on their behalf. Yeah. Yeah, so indirectly the actions of the fly dictate who takes the crown. Wow, that's a very strange species interaction. Yeah. So where about, which country was this in? This was Panama and Costa Rica, oh, so wow. South America. the hive of different, lots yeah. of different species in those countries. And lots countries. of things that probably um, suck your blood as well. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and also here's another one which I, I got for the same show. Yeah. Uh, moths have a taste for tears. So these moths live off the tears of mammals, find their secretions so tasty and nutritious. The moths wisely favour mild-mannered herbivores as their victims. <laughs> I'm not sure how you, you know whether that's a scientific concept calling them mild-mannered, but anyway. Yes, I'm not sure. <laughs> and another complicated Latin or Greek name, whatever it is, Lobercraspus griseffusa. Mm-hmm. A moth from Southeast Asia loves the taste of water buffalo ears. Ooh, uh, I don't imagine they'd be very tasty to humans. I said ears, I meant tears. Tears. So the researchers announced that certain moths drank tears and their reports were greeted with scepticism. <laughs> so some entomologists <laughs> thought it was freak behaviour or suspected that the insects involved were flies rather than moths. Mm. But subsequent research has revealed tear drinking to be a specialised and sophisticated strategy with important medical and veterinary implications. Hmm. The moths that drink teas are fastidious in their taste, restricting their attentions to certain species of animal. And the usual victims are either hoofed animals, such as cattle or other bovids, deer, hmm. horses, tapirs, pigs, elephants, and so on. Wow, a taste for tears. I haven't heard of that one before. We've got a couple of stories about water on planets. Let's start off with this one. You might have noticed in the Canberra Times the other day, 
And I really I picked this up because we had Brad Updike on the show earlier in the year. And hello, Brad. And it was uh, actually say earlier that was last year now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, he's an oceanographer and climatologist, and very cranky about the people who are saying that global warming is all an invention of the green left and uh, people who hate development and so on and so on. Uh, and one of his studies is about uh, the chemistry of oceans, and he looks at the carbon balance in oceans. Mm-hmm. And he was telling us that uh, he's they were studying the waters around the Great Bear Reef, or some of the reefs there, and guessing how much the coral is growing based on the chemistry of the water around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could see whether the carbon was being taken up by the coral being released and so on. Mm. And one of the concerns about carbon pollution, that we're pumping all these massive amounts of carbon into the air, is we're acidifying the oceans and putting carbon into the seas. Mm. And uh, anyway, he's, he was reluctant to say too much, but he said early signs were that the the particular reefs where they were studying seemed to have gone pretty much carbon neutral as far as the uh, the cycle with the coral goes yeah. to deficit. So mm. the corals weren't growing as fast. That's not a good. That's not good news. And I've heard that ocean acidification actually prevents coral from growing as well because if it's acidic, they can't build their shells very well. That's right. And I think that was that was the reason why it, he thought they were getting that measurement. Mm. Yeah, sounds right. So this item caught my news from the Canberra Times because it says that the acidification of the ocean uh, can actually make the oceans more noisy because it reduces the viscosity of the water and the presence of certain dissolved chemicals or relates to the presence of the dissolved chemicals. Mm. The concentration of chemicals that absorb the sound in the oceans has declined as a result of ocean acidification. And uh, using model simulations, the scientists found that increases in acidity could reduce seawater sound absorption uh, by as much as 60% by 2100. So mm-hmm. if that makes the seas a lot noisier, it's obviously not good for things like big animals like the whales, which communicate via sound. Well, I don't know. It's not good. It might, might mean that they get more sound from everything, but then it might be good as well. Maybe they can communicate over longer distances. Oh, I'm glad you could find a positive spin on that. Yeah. <laughs> and so if they can communicate over long distances, it's kind of safer for them as well. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think it being noisier down there would be a bit weird. I mean, I was scuba diving yesterday down Batemans Bay, and it is really noisy underwater. You don't think about it, but you can hear all these popping sounds and, and noises of, and clicks of different things and, um, you know, the noise of fish eating coral and rock and uh, of course you can hear boats from above yes so making it noisier well i don't know how it would i guess it depends how quickly the animals can adapt and uh, we were talking about how your brain processes signals mm. so i the brain the, the whales are pretty smart creatures yeah uh so maybe some noises wouldn't affect them like you know the noise yeah. in a crowded room they they, yeah. they can still distinguish the the yeah, voice maybe, that they're interested in. Maybe they'll be okay. But, um, yeah, I don't really know what the consequences of a noisy ocean would be. Do you, do you think that when you're swimming underwater, those yeah. little clicks and things, are, are that's, yeah. uh, that's actually the fish making those noises, the little pops uh, and clicks? I think some of it is the fish or maybe the, you know, different organisms that are down there. But, like, for instance, when you see a parrotfish eating coral or rock, mm-hmm. that's really noisy. You can hear it, like, grinding down the coral, which is really amazing. <laughs> Doesn't his mum say, close your mouth when I you're know. eating? You would have thought they'd been taught better from <laughs> Child. Now, there was a really interesting thing I listened to on the science show yeah. a few weeks back, and it was about researchers in West Australia, and they're listening to the sound of the ice in the Antarctic. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, because you can hear the, 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 the noises of the ice breaking up yeah, and so on. and creaking and moving and that yeah. kind of thing yeah. as it melts or gets cracks in it. Yeah. And they can actually give, use that as a bit of a cue as to how much activity is going down there. Oh, right. Amazing. Yeah, I've kind of heard that if you want to walk across a glacier or something, you should listen to it, first of all, uh, so you can tell whether it's really moving at the, that time or if something's yeah. going on. And if it's quiet, then you're probably quite safe. 
Ah, okay. Now, we did a while ago uh, mm. a show on um, the Antarctic as part of the International Year of the Poles. Yes, yeah. And that was a huge amount of fun. And in that show, we talked about a biplane that Mawson took down to the pole with him. Yeah. And they took the wings off and they used it as a sled. Mm. Well, did you see the news last night? They've just found bits of it again. Yeah, I just heard on the radio this morning and they're wondering whether they should bring it back to Australia to as a heritage item or whether they should leave it there. I guess it depends on whether it's going to degrade or not. Yeah, I was thinking it's probably perfectly preserved where it is, but no one will be able to see it except for in photos. But if you bring it back here, you'll have to do some serious restoration and preservation work to keep it going. But I don't know. Do we really need to bring back a plane from the Antarctic? Aren't there more important things to bring back? (laughs) I don't know. I have a friend in Antarctica right now. He's there for 16 months, and he's running the LADAR, which is like a radar but it uses light instead of radar and it measures um atmospheric stuff you know about the composition of the atmosphere ah so and he's down there for two summers and a winter and winter yeah wow at winter he's at davies at the davies base and at winter only 20 people stay there Yes, it'd be... For seven months. And because it's going to be dark outside. Yeah. Mostly dark. Mm. And not to mention colder, that's obvious. Mm. Did, do you know what facets of the atmosphere that he's studying? No, I don't know. I should Looking have looked it up. <laughs> he says, well, I could explain it to you, but here's a link. You can find out all about later probably from the Australian Antarctic Division website. Ah, so they might so be he's looking... the only scientist that stays down there over winter. Wow. Mm. So... Well, we're running out of time, so I thought we might just finish off with this item about, since we're talking about water and the earth. Yeah. So, according to this story, dry land was something of a novelty in the earth's past about 2.5 billion years ago, mm. and the planet was almost completely covered by water. Wow. Now, actually, I've got to diverge for a second here, as I do sometimes. Um, one of my most memorable moments on Fuzzy Logic was uh, with Ian Williams from the SHRIMP, uh, that's the mass spectrometer at ANU. It's mm-hmm. one of very high-grade mass spectrometer. Mm-hmm. And he appeared on the show and pulled out of his pocket a piece of rock and he said, that rock you are now holding is the oldest rock ever found on the planet. And it was four billion years old. I think wow. it comes from Jack Hills in West Australia. And I held this thing and I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And it looked like a piece of meatloaf, so a little sort of interesting coloured bits of stuff all jammed together. And after the show, we, he, he took me back to the lab, <laughs> so it sounds sus, and showed me this piece of equipment and it's a big stainless steel pipe with vacuum tubes and wires, a real boy toys, mm. fantastic thing. And it shoots, it's, uh, it's got a primary ion beam and it blasts a bit of the face of the rock out. And then the secondary beam is the iron, is the bits of the rock itself. And it goes along this about a two or three meter arc. And at the far end is a, is a detector and it measures basically where it falls. It bends the, the electromagnetic, um, electromagnets around the arc of this thing, um, bend the, bits of matter as it flies through the uh, you know across through this channel mm-hmm. and the more the further it flies the heavier the mass so you can see what kind of atoms you can do this fantastically fine analysis of what's in the rock wow very technical but amazing that they can look inside a rock so deeply well when you think about it you've got this uh, atoms or individual atoms that you're flying flying shooting off this rock yeah you're sending it two or three metres through a tiny grate and then you're measuring millimetre, micro or nanometre differences in where it lands. Incredible. <laughs> and with that, actually, I've just actually used up the time that I was going to... Uh, actually, let's just go a minute over and I'll yeah, finish this water. no one else banging to get in here. Yeah, and also, uh, I haven't um, given you the answer to the question about the world's population. <laughs> I'll do that at the end of this item. Mm-hmm. So today, some 28% of the Earth's surface is above sea level. Exactly how the ratio of this varied over the Earth's history is unclear, but it's generally agreed that the amount of continental crust has increased over time. Oh. So calculations from these researchers uh, suggest that 
Earth was a water world until about two and a half billion years ago, with land only making up two to three percent of the surface. Mm. And that they uh, assumed that the Earth's mantle was up to 200 degrees C hotter than it is today, and that there was a large quantity of radioactive elements decaying or producing the heat. Mm-hmm. So as the mantle cooled, the land would have gradually appeared and the oceans became deeper and regions of high relief on the continental crust formed. And the team believed that transition may help explain why levels of oxygen in the atmosphere rose around this time. And during the water well period, any oxygen produced by photosynthesising bacteria would have been quickly used up through reactions uh, with decaying matter. And when the newly emerged land eroded, it produced sediment that once washed into the oceans would have buried that matter, preventing any further reactions with oxygen. Oh, by the way, when you're wandering around Canberra, there's a few little spots where you get little iron ore outcrops. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is near, one near my home, and you get these little nodules of iron ore, and I, I think it's about 90-something percent pure iron. Little, you know, that classic rust-coloured lumps, really, really heavy. Yeah. And now I believe the way that they formed was basically that uh, there was not much oxygen in the ocean and you had all these iron salts dissolved mm. in the ocean and then you had these oxygen-producing uh, bacteria mm-hmm. or bacteria, have I got that right? Anyway, yep. organisms and the stuff rusted. Oh, okay. The iron in the ocean rusted and yeah. fell to the bottom and formed these deposits. So that's showing how Canberra used to be under the sea. Yes! <laughs> Even though we're 500 metres above sea level now. That's very exciting. I wish the sea was a little closer, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Global warming, we'll be laughing on the shores. Oh, we, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, yeah. We could have the ocean up around Bangandora. Yeah, and then it's just a lovely beach down there. Down there for a day's swim. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, on that cheery note, oh, actually, now I'm going to answer the question that I opened the show yes. with, and that was the world's population. And if you recall, I said at the time, that as of yesterday, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the world's population is six billion seven hundred ninety-three million eight hundred ninety-eight and twenty people. During the course of the month, uh, it will increase by six million per day. That's two hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the show, we've just done. If my maths is correct, the world's net population has increased by eight thousand five hundred. Wow, that's a lot of people. So that's eight thousand five hundred. Times four or five toilet flushes, <laughs> eight thousand um, bottoms sitting in cars, depending on where you live on the planet. Mm. Eight thousand times three meals to be produced. Eight thousand showers. If we are in Canberra, we all have a shower every day. So and on that cheery note, <laughs> it's time to say. Goodbye to us from Fuzzy Logic, and we'll be back next week with yep. more science on a Sunday. Happy New Year to everyone. Looking yes. forward to a good science-filled 2010, the year of biodiversity, international year of biodiversity this year. Well, let's maybe get you back on, Joe, and we'll talk about biodiversity. That sounds like a great idea. And we have lots of exciting Fuzzy Logic coming up, full of energy and looking forward to more Fuzzy through 2010. Yes. So... That's goodbye from me, Rod and yeah, Joe. Goodbye. And everyone. we'll close out with whatever is on the next track of that one we were just playing. Let's oh. hit that. <laughs> See you next week from Fuzzy Logic. Bye. You're on Community Radio 2XX.